From New York, this is Democracy Now! Easing the cost of living crisis grows most difficult by the day, with the war in Ukraine accelerating the rising prices of energy and food. Add the impacts of conflicts, droughts, hunger and extreme poverty, and the result is a perfect storm for perpetuating poverty and injustice. As the UN Secretary General blasts wealthy nations for rigging the global economy for their benefit, we'll speak to the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joe Stiglitz about how war, the pandemic, and the climate emergency are causing economic crises across the globe. And as we move in on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we'll speak with MSNBC host Mehdi Hassan about his new book, Win Every Argument, and his views on Fox News. It's very hard when 20 to 30 percent of the American public has been cocooned off in a bubble where they are fed misinformation, disinformation by the likes of Ingram and Hannity and Rupert Murdoch, who goes under oath in a deposition and says, yeah, my hosts endorsed the big lie. Yeah, you know, I don't believe in it. But by the way, according to the reporting, Murdoch hands over secret Democratic Party ads and uh, haven't aired yet to Jared Kushner. He gives debate strategy to Kushner. In any other news organization, heads would roll. But Fox is not a news organization. This as the Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy hands over 40,000 hours of January 6th video to Fox. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Biden administration's considering a plan to start detaining asylum-seeking families who are apprehended in the U.S.-Mexico border area after U.S. officials had largely ended the practice over the past two years. The move comes as the U.S. continues to intensify its crackdown on asylum seekers as it prepares to phase out the contested Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy in May. The rule's been used to expel over 2 million migrants without due process at the southern border. Silky Shaw of the Detention Watch Network said on Twitter, Biden confirming his Obama 2.0 status with this news. I really hope it's a trial balloon that doesn't go anywhere. But if not, they're definitely going to get a fight, she said. Last month, the Biden administration proposed another policy that would force tens of thousands of asylum seekers to first seek protection in Mexico or another country they pass through on their trek to the U.S. Harsher immigration policies are forcing asylum seekers to rely on more dangerous methods and routes to reach the U.S. In Mexico, over 340 migrants from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador and Ecuador were found in an abandoned truck in the state of Veracruz Sunday. More than 100 unaccompanied migrant children were among the group. In Tunisia, authorities have arrested hundreds of sub-Saharan African refugees following President Kais Saied's racist remarks last month calling for an end to sub-Saharan migration, as he claimed black migrants were part of a so-called plot to alter Tunisia's demographics. The comments have triggered a wave of violence and hate crimes against African refugees, forcing many of them to seek safety at the UN's International Organization for Migration building in the capital, Tunis, after being attacked. 
The president has faced widespread backlash over his remarks. The African Union postponed a conference scheduled to take place in Tunisia this month. Meanwhile, the Biden administration said it was concerned by the comments as well as the arbitrary arrest of refugees in Tunisia. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price addressed the issue Monday. These remarks are not in keeping with Tunisia's long history of generosity in hosting and protecting refugees, asylum seekers and migrants, and we're disturbed by reports of violence uh, against these very migrants. We urge Tunisian authorities to meet their obligations under international law to protect the rights of refugees, asylum seekers uh, and migrants. South Korea has agreed to set up a fund to compensate victims of forced labor during Japan's colonization of Korea in the first half of the 20th century. South Korea's foreign ministry plans to raise the funds through voluntary contributions by businesses. South Korean survivors condemn the agreement as a betrayal by their own government. They've been pushing for the funds to come directly from Japanese companies responsible for enslaving Koreans, including Nippon Steel Corporation and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Supporters of the victims rallied against the agreement at a protest in Seoul Tuesday. We condemn the South Korean government for exempting Japan from its responsibility. It should have stood up to the Japanese government and engaged in diplomatic negotiations. Japan should apologize and compensate. But it doesn't make sense that the government proposed compensation in this shameful way without Japan's apology. In Washington, President Biden celebrated the deal Monday as a groundbreaking new chapter of cooperation and partnership between Japan and South Korea. North Korea's governments warned the United States against shooting down any of its missiles. Kim Yo-jong, the sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, said any such interception would be viewed as a declaration of war. Her warning came a day after the U.S. flew a nuclear-capable B-52 bomber over the Korean peninsula in a joint drill with South Korean warplanes. Meanwhile, Japan's space agency failed in its debut attempt to launch its new H-3 rocket to orbit on Tuesday after the vehicle's second-stage engine failed to ignite. The malfunction destroyed a land observation satellite that was designed to help detect North Korean ballistic missile launches. U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is planning to meet Taiwan's president in the coming weeks when she visits California. The Financial Times reports Tsai Ing-wen convinced McCarthy to meet her on U.S. soil rather than in Taipei to avoid an aggressive Chinese military response. In Beijing, China's new foreign minister, Qin Gang, condemned the U.S. stance over Taiwan Tuesday in his first news conference since taking office. The Chinese people have every right to ask why does the U.S. talk at length about respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity on Ukraine while disrespecting China's sovereignty and territorial integrity on the Taiwan question? Why does the U.S. ask China not to provide weapons to Russia while it keeps selling arms to Taiwan? Those remarks came as Chinese President Xi Jinping directly accused the United States of suppressing China's development Monday in what The Wall Street Journal described as a, quote, unusually blunt rebuke of U.S. policy. She said, quote, Western countries led by the U.S. have implemented all-round containment, encirclement and suppression against us, bringing unprecedentedly severe challenges to our country's development, he said. 
Ukraine's military leaders have called off plans to retreat from the eastern city of Bakhmut, requesting reinforcements amid some of the heaviest fighting since Russia invaded over one year ago. Military analysts say that while both sides are suffering heavy casualties, Russian conscripts and Wagner Group mercenaries are dying at a faster rate. This week, the U.S. think tank, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, estimated Russian deaths in Ukraine have surpassed all its war fatalities since World War II combined, with as many as a quarter of a million dead and wounded in the first year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. A court in Belarus has convicted opposition leader Svetlana Shikhanouskaya to charges of treason, sentencing her in absentia to 15 years in prison. In 2020, she ran for president against Belarus's longtime leader, Alexander Lukashenko, after her husband, Sergei, was jailed while running for president. She fled Belarus to exile in neighboring Lithuania after the election. In Haiti, the humanitarian aid group Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, is considering suspending its operations after a series of shootouts at its clinics in Port-au-Prince and other violent incidents, as the island nation is increasingly controlled by gangs. Locals are also facing deepening food insecurity and hunger, while medicine and other resources are extremely hard to access due to the turmoil. Human rights advocates have documented severe abuses, including sexual violence and hundreds of killings. A new report by the U.N. says weapons are being smuggled from the United States and ending up in the streets of Haiti. Fighting between gangs has also intensified over the control of territory, forcing families to flee their homes. I was sleeping on the street. I came back this morning and I see that things are still the same. Are you going to leave the house permanently? I have no place to go. I have no place to go. The Biden administration is considering a plan to vaccinate millions of chickens against avian influenza. The plan comes amidst the worst outbreak of the viral disease in U.S. history, which has killed tens of millions of domesticated chickens, turkeys and ducks, along with countless wild birds. It's been blamed for thousands of sea lion deaths in Peru and has sickened and killed dozens of other species, raising fears it could lead to community spread among humans. In Georgia, prosecutors have charged 23 forest defenders with domestic terrorism charges after their arrest late Sunday at a festival near the site of Cop City, a massive police training facility being built in the Wilani Forest. The arrest followed clashes between police and protesters Sunday afternoon. On Monday, Atlanta interfaith clergy members joined activists calling on Mayor Andre Dickens and other city officials to cancel the $90 million Cop City project. To ignore the cries of residents, the city of Atlanta moves to destroy the nation's largest urban forest and replace it with the largest militarized police training facility in North America. And may I add that in the face of the violent raid that took place last night, as city residents gathered in solidarity to defend this forest, that is an example of the militarization that we are calling out. In Ohio, Norfolk Southern has agreed to a limited plan to relocate residents of East Palestine affected by the February 3rd rail disaster, which caused a massive release of vinyl chloride and other toxic chemicals. Local activists with the group River Valley Organizing called the move an important first victory, but said in a statement, quote, bottom line, this is not enough. A one-mile radius for relocation doesn't reflect the facts on the ground that this chemical disaster has had a far-reaching impact. We need to 
stop letting Norfolk Southern put their profits ahead of the people of our community, they said. And in Minneapolis, environmental justice advocates are appealing to Minnesota state legislature and Supreme Court for relief after city councilors voted 7-6 to six to demolish a warehouse on a former Superfund site in South Minneapolis. Residents of the East Phillips neighborhood and surrounding communities fear the demolition of the Roof Depot site would stir up toxic chemicals from a site known as the Arsenic Triangle, and have proposed turning the building as an indoor urban farm and community business hub. Last month, over 100 Minneapolis police swarmed the site and arrested eight activists who'd occupied the space to prevent its demolition. This is Cassie Holmes, a resident of the nearby Little Earth housing complex, which is home to many Native Americans. The way I found out about this site was that I had lost my oldest son, who was 16, to a heart condition he wasn't born with. My best friend lost a child at an early age of 20 after her second child to a heart disease she wasn't born with. We lost friends to asthma attacks, and I, we start learning about how um, toxic the air is in our community. And then so we wanted to create a green space with green living, green jobs, green training. And it was going to be at this site right here, um, but the city threatened imminent domain. They got the site, and what they want to do is break down, demolish this building, which is encapsulated um, arsenic, um, and everything that they want to bring in is just going to create a lot more toxic pollution for our already over-toxic uh, community. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we'll speak to the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joe Stiglitz about how war— the pandemic and the climate emergency are causing economic crises across the globe. Stay with us. Well, I know there are answers, and I gotta get to the source. I think me and this system got to get a divorce. got anger to burn but we're talking and moving we're gonna study working class woman barbara dane here on democracy now democracynow.org the war and peace report i'm amy goodman in new york joined by democracy now co-host juan gonzalez in chicago hi juan Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, it's been nearly three years since much of the world shut down as COVID-19 rapidly spread across the globe. And it's just over a year since Russia invaded Ukraine. These two events, the pandemic and the war, have reshaped the global economy. Some have seen their wealth soar, but billions have suffered. Earlier this week, the U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, addressed the opening of the summit of least developed countries in Doha, Qatar. Easing the cost of living crisis grows most difficult by the day 
with the war in Ukraine accelerating the rising prices of energy and food. Add the impacts of conflicts, droughts, hunger and extreme poverty, and the result is a perfect storm for perpetuating poverty and injustice. We must end this storm. But we must recognize that to end this storm, we require massive and sustainable investment. And least developed countries require and deserve massive financial and economic support. For your countries, progress on the Sustainable Development Goals, starting with the eradication of extreme poverty and ending hunger, is about more than lines on a chart leading to 2030. It is a matter of life and death, and it is unacceptable if you are held back by processes and decisions that are made far beyond your borders. To talk more about the state of the global economy, we're joined by the Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stiglitz. He's a Columbia University professor, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisers. Professor Stiglitz is also currently the chief economist of the Roosevelt Institute. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Joe. It's great to have you with us. This are very, very difficult times. Let's follow up on what the U.N. Secretary General has talked about, the crisis in the world today, uh, as we look at the international economic crisis, soaring inflation, devalued currencies, nations across the globe confronting catastrophic debt crisis. Can you talk about the situation globally? Well, you've described it. Uh, what concerns me right now is that all of this is being made worse by monetary policies uh, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates when the problem is not excess aggregate demand. The problem is uh, uh, a supply side interruptions, demand shifts caused by the very forces that you described, the war, the pandemic. And uh, let me be frank, uh, raising interest rates designed to slow the economy down, increase unemployment, is going to be uh, not the right policy for addressing the inflation that we face. You're talking about Jay Powell, um, the Federal Reserve Chair, who's going to be addressing Congress or speaking to being questioned by Congress today and tomorrow. You are a fierce critic. That's right. Uh, I think they misdiagnosed the problem. And because of the misdiagnosis, the solution is not only the wrong solution, it's a solution that may make things worse. Uh, you know, raising interest rates from the level of zero where they were to a normal level uh, was a, a, a right move. We needed to normalize interest rates. But continuing to raise the interest rates has having the effect of globally uh, leading to uh, exchange rate devaluations. Uh, it will worsen the global debt crisis. Uh, countries uh, uh, already over debt will find it even more difficult to pay back. But even coming back to the United States, uh, one of the major sources of inflation is housing. And what are the raising, uh, increasing interest rates? Uh, it, inducing uh, a, redu a reduction in uh, investment in housing, making the problem even worse. 
Uh, when we have all these supply side interruptions and demand shifts, we need more investment. And his response is to have less investment. Well, Joe Stiglitz, for those people who, who are not uh, uh, versed in, in economics, why is higher? Why are higher interest rates so detrimental, especially to the global south? I mean, uh, clearly uh, there's going to be a flight of investment capital from other portions of the world into uh, U.S. treasuries. And there's also and the impact that this has on the the debt of the of the countries of the global south, as well as their own uh, monetary uh, value of their own money. So when the money leaves these other countries and goes uh, into the United States, into the dollar, it increases the value of the dollar. It decreases the value of their own currency. The problem is that the money that they borrowed overwhelmingly is denominated in dollars. So what they earn abroad, uh, it, what they earn at home is worth less relative to what they owe to their creditors. And so it makes it harder and harder for them to pay. But making it still worse is not only is the value of their currency lower, the interest rates they have to pay are higher. And making it still worse, the intent of this is to have a global economic slowdown. And so these countries that depend vitally on exports will find that they can sell less. Uh, the value of what they are, uh, uh, of their economy goes down. They're paying higher interest rates. The IMF and the World Bank have warned about a debt crisis. And what the Federal Reserve is doing now is making the risk of a much worse global debt crisis. Uh, countries that are poor will get even poorer. I wanted to ask you about another impact uh, of the uh, war in Ukraine that is not often talked about. For decades now, we've had uh, proponents of neoliberalism claim that uh, free trade is the key uh, to the uh, world economic development. But as you were mentioning, uh, supply supply chain issues during COVID, as well as the war in Ukraine, have suddenly exposed uh, the the flaws of assuming that you've got a world economic system where you can get goods from any part of the world uh, just in time production of, of most of these companies. What is the future of, of free trade now, given the rising not only the pandemic, but the impact of the of the Ukraine war uh, on the world? Well, you put your finger on a major problem of the kind of economic system that we've developed uh, in the last 40 years, what you call the neoliberal system, uh, it was short-sighted. We saw that in 2008, the global financial crisis caused by short-sighted banks focusing on exploiting poor Americans, predatory lending, abusive credit card practices, uh, excessive risk-taking. But part of this pattern of short-sightedness was saying, uh, if I can get uh, uh, oil gas uh, a few pennies cheaper, uh, I'll do it regardless of the risk. Uh, I wrote in my book, Making Globalization Work, in 2006, that Europe's becoming so dependent on Russian gas was foolish. Uh, it was short-sighted. Uh, 
Putin was not a reliable source uh, of uh, energy. And unfortunately, that prediction turned out all too true and leading to uh, the energy crisis that we faced uh, and Europe particularly faced in the aftermath of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I think we've learned that uh, markets are short-sighted. The uh, just-in-time inventory production system made our economy very unresilient. And so the economic consequences of the pandemic were amplified by this fundamental mistake in the market economy. You know, we always pointed out that markets don't price carbon. That's the reason that they go uh, engage in excessive uh, pollution. Uh, but they also don't price risk. And uh, we are now rethinking uh, the nature of the global economic system. Ironically, uh, this is going on even on the part of those, say, Republicans who supported free trade. Uh, the bipartisan bill, bills uh, on uh, IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, and the CHIPS Act both uh, uh, ignored basic rules of the WTO in trying to give preference to American firms and trying to resuscitate American production. Uh, they may be good policies, but they are they contravene international trading norms. Uh, so we are going to have to redefine uh, the global international order. Uh, I also wanted to ask you about the impact of the rising tensions between China and the United States and, uh, for the world economy and, and especially for the poorest sectors of the uh, of our planet. Uh, we, we've seen the, uh, the, the the statement by uh, President Xi Jinping uh, recently uh, claiming that the United States is seeking to encircle and contain China. I even more extraordinary was a statement issued by the Chinese uh, foreign ministry uh, just last week. It was an extraordinarily uh, critical uh, uh, overview of how China sees the role of the United States in the world, claiming it's the greatest source of of uh, violence and instability in the world, both militarily and economically. Uh, and I'm wondering what your sense is of the potential impact that a lot of people who are claiming uh, that we've got to get tougher on China, what the, imp what the implications are for the economy, given how much China has become the manufacturing center of the planet? Well, first, let me say my first concern is that there are a number of global problems that we need to work together. Uh, we have to address the problem of global warming. Uh, we are just getting over the pandemic, and most uh, uh, epidemiologists believe that there is likely to be another pandemic. We don't know when, but certainly when it occurs, we will need a high levels of global uh, cooperation. So uh, this uh, heightened rhetoric from both sides has diminished our ability to cooperate uh, in areas where uh, we have to cooperate. Of course, we have to be vocal in our criticism of the uh, diminution of what, the, what, uh, what China did to democracy in Hong Kong, what it's doing with the Uyghurs. 
Uh, I think we have to be frank about that. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think we have to uh, be very targeted uh, in our response uh, and broadsides of the kind that both sides have engaged in uh, make it difficult for us to undertake uh, the cooperative actions uh, that we need. At the same time, I think uh, not only do we have to be blunt uh, about uh, the violations of human rights and democracy, uh, we have to call out uh, some of the policies that have had uh, devastating effects on developing countries. Uh, China has lent money to many countries uh, without appropriately assessing uh, the returns in that money. Uh, uh, sometimes there are allegations of, of uh, corruption. Uh, but when countries have had problems, uh, there's been a reluctance to restructure debt. Sri Lanka has become the poster child. If the debt crisis that we've uh, that has been anticipated uh, turns out to be real, there will have to be debt restructurings, but there will have to be debt restructurings that are comprehensive, including China and the private sector from the West. The private sector from the West is often engaged also in reckless lending and occasionally in corrupt practices. So I don't want to put my finger put my finger in one direction. Uh, this is a global problem. There will have to be debt restructurings, and we have to have ways of making sure that the money that is lent to these countries are lent for productive purposes, uh, not for enriching uh, the lender or for geopolitical reasons. You're the author, Joe Stiglitz, of uh, The Three Trillion Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict, as we come up on the 20th anniversary of this. And we're also seeing war right now taking place in Ukraine, the U.S. warning China not to send that there's a red line if they send weapons to Russia. Interestingly, almost the same day that um, the Biden, that uh, S Secretary of State Blinken announced $600 million of U.S. weapons would be going to Taiwan. Can you talk about this and also how the war compares when uh, in dealing with um, conflict and the economy around the world, what it does? Well, first, I mean, obviously, the, some of these asymmetries uh, that you point out uh, uh, don't make things better. They make things worse. Uh, that uh, uh, I find it a little bit difficult uh, for uh, uh, to understand how we could have such blinkers uh, on what we do, uh, as uh, you suggested by what you said. The second thing that concerns Linda Bilmes, uh, who teaches at Harvard and wrote that book uh, with me, uh, we've been discussing how many of the lessons of the Iraq and Afghanistan war have not been learned. Uh, the one of the points that we made is how expensive that war was. We estimated at the time three trillion dollars. The true cost now has clearly exceeded that amount. Uh, probably more like five trillion would be a bottom line estimate. But the American people were never uh, uh, taken in 
to uh, uh, told this was what it was going to uh, cost. The accounting systems used by the government, by the Department of Defense, uh, are are designed to obscure the true costs. Uh, there are special budgets. Uh, not even Congress fully discusses the entire comprehensive cost of these wars. And while I strongly support backing Ukraine uh, and resisting the Russian invasion, uh, I think it's important uh, as a matter of public policy that we have greater transparency uh, and greater accountability and that we look uh, full on on the cost as well as the uh, as what the reasons for this war. I, I want to ask you one of the key points I think you make often about income inequality, uh, the growing uh, income inequality in the United States and the world is that it's not a result of uh, market forces, but it's actually a result of concrete policies adopted by political leaders. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, as we uh, head into uh, more decisions have to be made before the next presidential election by Congress in terms of its uh, of its policies uh, on the economy, what do you see as the key uh, issues that have to be addressed that will not only lessen income inequality here, but around the world? Uh, yes, I mean, you put it well. Uh, I've often written that uh, uh, inequality, poverty is a matter of choice. Uh, we, we, not of the people themselves, but of our policy frameworks that lead to the levels of inequality. A wonderful example of that was the ability of the Biden administration, uh, by the acts it took in the responding to the pandemic, to reduce childhood poverty by an estimated 40, 50 percent in one year. Uh, we could have done it at any time in the past. Uh, we could have uh, adopted the policies which have this enormous effect on child poverty. The reason I talk so uh, strongly about childhood po poverty, children who grow up poverty are not going to be learning, uh, not going to be as productive, effective citizens. We affect, what we do today affects our economy, our society uh, in the future. What worries me right now, for instance, is uh, that the uh, special emergency food uh, uh, that was given during the pandemic is has just ended this month or last month in February. And the result of that is that millions, millions of children uh, who were moved out of poverty by that emergency food assistance are now being moved back into uh, poverty. You're talking uh, about SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. That's right. And, uh, and uh, it's estimated that um, uh, uh, 4.2 million people above the poverty line uh, in uh, 2021 uh, depended on uh, those emergency uh, assistance of uh, SNAP. Uh, and the effect of that was to uh, reduce poverty by 10% and childhood poverty by 14% in those states that had that uh, assistance. So uh, we ought to be recognizing that we're now making another set of choices, uh, seemingly to increase poverty, uh, a, a set of actions I, I find uh, uh, unconscionable. 
at the same time, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, uh, the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates, slowing the economy. It all sounds so technical. Uh, let's be clear about what the Fed is trying to do. And it's been a little bit explicit about it. It wants to increase unemployment. Oh, that seems all like a, just a number. But increasing unemployment means that millions of people will have no jobs. Millions of people will move into poverty. Millions of people's lives will be broken. Uh, education will be interrupted. And it is particularly uh, going to affect um, certain subgroups within our population. For instance, when the Fed seemingly innocuously says, oh, we're trying to target increased unemployment to a number like 5%. Can you believe it? The government saying we want there to be more unemployment. Uh, what that means for minorities is that they're going to have uh, unemployment rates twice that. And for minority, youth minority, four times that. That means the Federal Reserve wants there to be an unemployment rate of excess of 20% for these groups. Now, it would uh, they should call on the government and the fiscal authorities to do everything they can to improve the safety net, improve tra uh, training programs for those thrown out of work. I haven't heard a peep, uh, not a word, saying that these increases in interest rates have to be accompanied by these measures if we are not to going to increase the inequalities in our society, not going to increase the numbers of people in our society in poverty. And at the same time, you have student loan forgiveness uh, being challenged by the Supreme Court. That's right. And again, um, some people are saying, oh, it's going to have enormous macroeconomic effects. That's wrong. Uh, we've looked at uh, the numbers. Uh, it's very clear the effect on uh, inflation is nil. The effect on aggregate demand is uh, very, very low. Uh, the, uh, the reason is obvious. Uh, these are lifetime decks, uh, just because uh, much of this will never be paid back in any case, because uh, you can't squeeze water out of a stone. Uh, but even for those who will be paying back, their annual payments are uh, uh, relatively low, and they're certainly not going to be willing or able to borrow to get their debts back to offset debt reduction. So the reality is that all this, uh, uh, what is going on in the courts, will have the effect of putting the chain of debt around the neck of millions of Americans, affecting uh, how these young people can start their life, whether they can get married, whether they can buy a house, or even buy a car impeding their ability to search for a job better matched to their abilities. So in that sense, the evidence is pretty clear. When you have that kind of debt chained around the neck of young Americans, it actually hurts national productivity. And Joe Stiglitz, I wanted to ask you about the recent announcement by Colombia's Minister of Finance, Jose Antonio Campo, the, uh, to convene the first ever 
uh, ministerial summit for, for the Latin American and Caribbean or, or tax summit for the Latin American and Caribbean region. Do you have any hope that this will help put an end, uh, an effective end to the abuse of tax havens uh, and tax evasion by uh, some of these, uh, especially these, uh, some of the countries in the Caribbean that are notorious for hiding money? Well, I think Ocampo's measure uh, is very welcome. Uh, uh, and uh, the response, I think, has been very positive. Uh, it's only one step, but it's an important step. Uh, another important step was uh, the EU's agreement to go ahead with a minimum tax, corporate minimum tax that makes it more difficult for these tax havens to try to attract uh, uh, corporations or at least to pretend that the, the, the profits were generated in these tax havens. So it's an important step, but uh, a lot more is going to have to be done. Uh, the global proposal to have a global minimum tax uh, was too weak. It was only 15 percent. Uh, it should be 25 percent. Uh, there was a worry that the effect of that agreement is will be actually to lower tax rates in some countries uh, because many countries have a corporate minimum, a corporate tax rate that exceeds the 15 percent. Uh, so I worry that the minimum will actually wind up being the maximum and uh, more corporations will not be paying their fair share of taxes. Just, but it, uh, go ahead. We're going to have to leave it there. But we thank you so much for being with us. Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, Columbia University professor, former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, currently the chief economist of the Roosevelt Institute, among his many books, People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. Coming up on this 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq coming up, we're going to speak with Mehdi Hassan, the broadcaster, MSNBC. Sea host, now author of Win Every Argument. Stay with us. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Cause all I ever have redemption songs, redemption songs. Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Redemption Song by Bob Marley and the Whalers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Fox News host Tucker Carlson kicked off his first installment of analyzing footage from the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection that was shared with him by Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy exclusively by playing cherry-picked clips on his top-rated Fox show Monday night. They were peaceful, they were orderly and meek. These were not insurrectionists, they were sightseers. Footage from inside the Capitol overturns the story you've heard about January 6th. Protesters queue up in neat little lines. 
They give each other tours outside the speaker's office. They take cheerful selfies and they smile. They're not destroying the Capitol. They obviously revere the Capitol. They're there because they believe the election was stolen from them. They believe in the system. Tucker Carlson claimed the House January 6th committee withheld evidence about the attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters and said of the rioters, quote, they were right in retrospect. It's clear the 2020 election was a grave betrayal of American democracy, unquote. This comes as Trump addressed the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, Saturday night as he campaigns for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination while facing multiple criminal investigations. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen. I am your retribution, Trump said. Other speakers peddling Trump's big lie of election fraud got top billing at CPAC, where they addressed half-filled rooms while calling Trump the former and future president. For more, we're joined by Eddie Hassan, journalist and author, host of weekly shows on MSNBC, nightly also on Peacock. His new book is titled Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. Congratulations on your book. No argument there. Um, Thank you. Uh, your take on President Trump and the case he's making for 2024? So you played that clip from Trump at CPAC. And as I pointed out on my show on Sunday night, that was pure, unadulterated fascism. I know some people, even on the left, don't like to use the F word in relation to Trump and Trumpism. But when a candidate for high office, a candidate who has previously incited an armed insurrection, when he stands up on stage and says, you put me back in office and I will be your retribution, that is straight out of the authoritarian playbook. That is rhetoric going back to the 1920s and 30s, I'm sorry to say. So he is not hiding this stuff. He's saying this stuff out in the open. Uh, we know what is on offer from Trump for 2024. We know what this country is in line for, were he to get back in. And let's not rule out. People say, oh, well, he can't win. Of course he can win. This is America. Uh, he's won before. There's an electoral college. Of course he could win. It's a two-party system. So for me, it's chilling rhetoric. It's not something I take lightly. Uh, he has created an army of mini-me's in Congress, the Marjorie Taylor Greens of this world. He has people like Kevin McCarthy still covering for him, providing that footage, as you mentioned, to Tucker Carlson, who then lies about it on air. Tucker Carlson, who tells Dominion in a lawsuit, I don't believe in the big lie under oath, but then goes on TV to say he does. The cynicism of Fox and of the Trump enablers never ceases to amaze me, Amy. Uh, and, uh, Mindy, I wanted to ask you, uh, in terms of this issue of authoritarianism, I don't know if you saw there, there was a piece by Chris Hedges, the former New York Times reporter recently, uh, where he calls the, 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 uh, the crowd uh, at... Uh, in the January 6th uh, uh, protest and uh, insurrection uh, deplorables. But at the same time, he claims that he believes that there has been excessive uh, government crackdown on them to the point that many people are being sentenced to long sentences for what are essentially uh, uh, minor crimes. I'm, uh, and he 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 lays out the case that this is actually creating more divisions in the country uh, than necessary. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the piece, but what you think about the how the government has the handled piece, the protesters? Yeah, no, I haven't seen the piece. And I think anyone who thinks let, let, let's just it's a very simple um, let's just have a very simple thought experiment. 
If the hundreds of people who had attacked the Capitol, injured more than 140 officers, threatened the lives of members of Congress, had been black, had that been a mass crowd of Muslims, of people who look like me with my name, I can assure you, and I can assure Chris Edges, the sentences would be far longer, the prisoners would have been treated much worse, and there would be no political support, as there is from one political party for these quote-unquote political prisoners. They're not. They're people who launched an armed insurrection on the Capitol. So I don't agree uh, that they've been treated uh, in an excessive way. Now, has there been an over-focus on the foot soldiers of the insurrection while the ringleaders and the insiders have gotten off? That I completely agree with. Has the Department of Justice, has our political and judicial and legal systems and our media gone only after the people who were ransacking the Capitol and going after members of Congress and assaulting police officers? Yes, because it, it, you know, at the expense of the people in charge, yes. I mean, I'm amazed that we are uh, two years, more than two years out from this and Donald Trump is running for president. Think about how the rest of the world sees us. A president who lost an election, refused to leave office, claimed he hadn't lost, incited an armed insurrection, then left office, went to his exile in Florida and carried on inciting more insurrections, is now running for office again and polling pretty well. Like, what would we say if we saw that in another country? Our democracy is broken. Our judicial system clearly cannot handle a Republican Party that is effectively pro-insurrection. And I think, you know, anyone who says that these people have been dealt with excessively uh, needs to Google the term white privilege. Uh, I want to ask you, you've also been uh, very vocal and followed the restrictions of, of voting rights all across the country. You're... Uh, your sense of the impact this is going to have on our next election? I think we don't know, is the honest answer. We had the midterms that came along. Some of us were warning, look, this is a really important midterm election. Thankfully, voters in states, in key swing states, rejected election deniers for the secretary of state positions in places like Michigan, in places like Arizona, in places like Georgia. Uh, they rejected gubernatorial candidates who are election deniers in places like Arizona. Carrie Lake still refusing to accept she lost in true Trumpian fashion. Um, so that was a good sign that came out of the midterms. Now, my worry, and I've said this on my show, is let's not be complacent. The threat to democracy is not over. Um, I have said on the record that the Republicans controlling the House of Representatives, we don't know whether they'll control the House of Representatives come January 2025. It's likely they will. They control it currently. Um, that's a real problem because I don't see a House of Representatives led by Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene in January 2025 agreeing to certify the election. I think we're in no man's land come January 2025. And I think there's enough election deniers still in local levels that could cause problems. I think there's enough voter suppression laws that can cause problems. Look at Florida, where uh, the majority of Floridians voted in 2018 to restore voting rights uh, to former felons, disproportionately black former felons. And Ron DeSantis has led a crusade, both at the political level and judicial level, to reverse that decision, the decision of the people of Florida in his supposedly free state of Florida. So the Republicans are not sleeping on this. They're not relaxing on this. Uh, they are taking every possible measure to try and restrict the vote, to try and limit young people from voting, people of color from voting, because they know they can't win uh, otherwise. Nikki Haley said it herself at CPAC. Seven of the last presidential elections, the Republican Party has lost a popular vote. They know that. When we're talking on the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, which was happened in um, in just two weeks after the 58th, after the assassination of Malcolm X. But I want to turn to your book, Mehdi, Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. And I want to refer to a moment uh, that you talk about um, where you're interviewing uh, in October 2020 um, 
John Bolton, who yes. has who was the uh, Bush White House national security adviser. Um, he was uh, promoting his memoir, uh, The Room Where It Happened. And um, he came on your show. This is what happened. The reality is hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. There was torture, millions of refugees. And that did follow from the decision by George W. Bush, Dick Cheney and others in the administration like yourself to invade Iraq. Hundreds of thousands of people died. And just to go back to my question, which you didn't answer, do those deaths never do those deaths never weigh on your conscience was my question, which you didn't answer. No, I did answer it. I'll answer it again since you didn't seem to listen to it. The, the fact was, after the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, uh, a number of decisions could have been made in different ways. With respect, John Bolton, you weren't you weren't a pundit on Fox News then. You were in government. I don't remember you quitting in objection to the occupation. And the fact and is, that occupation... That occupation, let me just finish my question, then you come back in. That occupation produced thousands of dead, torture, refugees. Uh, Richard Clark, who was White House counterterrorism czar at the time, uh, shortly after 9-11, called it war crimes. Kofi Annan called the war illegal. I just wonder, do you ever worry that, you, you know, people have tried to do citizen's arrests on you in the past. Do you ever worry you may have to face a court to answer for that war and that occupation for the war crimes that happened back then? Uh, of course not, because what you're saying is completely ludicrous. And those who made those kinds of criticisms are not reflecting what actually happened. So that is Mehdi Hassan questioning the former Bush national security adviser, John Bolton. And I just wanted to read a little um, paragraph um, uh, from The Guardian talking about you. Um, uh, for those who criticize the news media as too white, too Christian, too complacent, too inward-looking, too pompous, too prone to herd mentality, and too deferential to authority. Hassan has come along in the nick of time, a British-born Muslim of Indian descent, anti-establishment, muckraker, unabashed lefty with a bias towards democracy. Um, talk about this in the context of the argument you're making in win every argument, what it means not to— uh, go on bended knee to power. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for having me on to talk about the book. Quick correction. John Bolton was the uh, Trump national security advisor under George Trump, Bush. Uh, yes, State right, Department right. Official. Sorry about that. Um, so he came on the show shortly having left the administration. I mean, the Bolton interview is a good example of, of, of what The Guardian very nicely said about me, which is I interviewed him in 2020. We're now at the 20th anniversary. That was, what, 17 years in. And I was amazed that no one had just asked him a very direct question, which is, how do you kind of sleep at night? How do you deal with all the deaths on your conscience? We can argue the rights and wrongs of the Iraq war. I clearly think it was wrong. He clearly thinks it was right. But no one's really asked him about his moral responsibility for everything that went down. And when I asked him about it, he ran from that debate. Oh, that he tried to separate out the occupation from the war. He just said things are ludicrous or inaccurate without dealing with the substance of what I was saying, which was obviously 100% true about the deaths and torture and refugees. And I feel like, you know, unfortunately, it's required someone like myself to come in and say, why are we not asking these questions? These are questions that people have. These are legitimate questions. And for far too long, uh, too many interviewers in America have been a little too deferential in my view, to people in power, whether they're Republican or Democrat, whatever it is. 
And uh, I come from a British media culture. The British media has many problems, has its own deference to people in power. But in terms of TV interviews, has a culture and tradition of much uh, more outspoken, much more combative interviews. And I've tried to bring that with me uh, into the U.S. media uh, on my show on MSNBC and on my show on Peacock. And to try and give, you know, I used to work at Al Jazeera English prior to joining MSNBC. And, and the motto there was give voice to the voiceless. So when I'm doing an interview, I'm trying to think, what questions would an audience member who would never get a chance to sit down with a John Bolt, what would they want to ask? And I try and ask those questions and I try and get an answer. That's another important point that I make in the book. If you're having a debate, an argument, an interview, and someone is gaslighting you, trying to steamroll you with nonsense, don't budge. Don't move on to the next question. Don't allow them to distract or deflect. Don't budge. Follow up. Stick to your topic. And, and Mandy, speaking of people in power, uh, I'd like to ask you about Joe Biden. Uh, unlike many uh, on, uh, on the, the left of the spectrum in America, you have a, a, a kinder assessment of uh, his role as president so far, even though you were skeptical uh, and uh, didn't really uh, initially support his candidacy. Yeah. I'm wondering your, uh, if you could talk about that assessment. So I'm going to push back on the premise of your question and say many on the left, a lot of lefties I've met are surprisingly, uh, uh, you know, positively surprised by what Biden has achieved. You can take Bernie Sanders uh, at the top of that list. You can take members of the squad who have all been like, wow, we didn't expect some of this stuff. Obviously, he's not been as left wing or progressive as we would have liked, but certainly more than we imagined. I never imagined he would be the Democratic nominee. I thought he wouldn't win the primaries. I didn't think he I, I worried whether he would be able to beat Trump. He did beat Trump. So he proved me wrong twice. And then I thought he would be a classically centrist, neoliberal president. And again, third time, he surprised me. You look at what he's achieved in some of his legislation from the American Rescue Plan, which was one of the biggest uh, poverty reduction acts in modern memory. You look at what he achieved with the Inflation Reduction Act and the record spending on climate change. Again, not enough, but more than his predecessors. You know, life is relative. I can only compare him to other presidents. And he's done far more than Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, uh, his Democratic predecessors. I think it's fair to say he has achieved more legislatively than any president going back to LBJ, maybe even back to FDR. And people just don't look at the results. Now, has he done enough on immigration? Not at all. I'm not a fan of his recent uh, immigration moves. I'm not a fan of some of the stuff he's done on COVID. Uh, I'm not a fan of his Israel-Palestine policy, of course. But then take Afghanistan. The man ended the longest war in American history. That is, and he did it at great personal political cost. You look at his polls, people forget this. Joe Biden's polls first took their nosedive in August of 2021 when he pulled out of Afghanistan with the entire Beltway media, the entire D.C. political establishment saying, don't do it. This is a mistake. This is a disaster. And he did it. And I think you've got to give credit where credit's due. Now, as I say, there are many things I will continue to criticize him on. And I've had his members of his administration on my show and I've challenged them. But on the big picture, he is, without a shadow of a doubt, whether we like it or not, the most center left president of our lifetimes. Is that a low bar? Yes. But has he exceeded it? Yes. Finally, uh, we just have 30 seconds, but you had Senator Peter Welsh on your show this weekend, who is supporting Bernie Sanders' call to debate conditioning yeah. aid to Israel. And you talked about the reference to what's happening, what the Israeli soldiers are doing in the West Bank as a pogrom. Yeah, so that was an Israeli general who used that word. And I'm glad that American politicians led by Bernie Sanders are starting to talk about this aid debate, that we cannot just give billions and billions of dollars to Israel every year as they carry out massive human rights abuses, pogroms, ethnic cleansing. We keep saying it's shared values. That's why we support Israel. Well, these are not shared values. And I'm glad that Democrats increasingly slowly are starting to speak up. Let's see if the rest of them do. 
Mehdi Hassan, we thank you so much for being with us. Journalist and author, host of shows on MSNBC and Peacock. His new book is Win Every Argument, The Art of Debating, Persuading, and Public Speaking. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Thanks so much for joining us.